This is Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. I'm very pleased to add material to our Dialogue on Teaching podcast. The Wabash Center is re-releasing in podcast format the video series, The Eye That Teaches. The Eye That Teaches, produced by Associate Director Tim Lake, interviewed senior scholars to talk about their teaching lives. These scholars provide great insights into their experiences as teachers and mentors. I want to thank our sound engineer, Dr. Paul Myrie, who has worked with this technology, as well as provided original music that frames the podcast. This is Dialogue on Teaching. Dr. Eddie Gloud is on the faculty of Princeton University. He is the James S. McDonald Distinguished Professor of African American Studies, as well as the chair of the Center for African American Studies. Dr. Gloud is well known for his poignant political and cultural critique as a regular voice on MSNBC. We hope you enjoy this edition of The Eye That Teaches, audio version. Now, Princeton University, I teach religion and I'm the chair of African American Studies. Small town on the coast of Mississippi, Moss Point. Mississippi, named after the moss of, that dangles from a magnolia tree. I'm not, my, my religion was important. I wouldn't call it a religious household. You know, uh, we grew, I grew up Catholic. Uh, my mother converted to Catholicism when she married my father, who um, was raised Catholic. Um, but he uh, didn't really attend Mass, but my mother would wake us up and take us to church. And, uh, I, you know, I went to Morehouse uh, in their early admit program, so I jumped out of it in my junior year. Uh, so at the age of 16, I went to college and went to Morehouse. And there I was drenched in Baptist waters. Yeah, you know, it was a seeking, you know, trying to answer some questions that uh, I don't think the languages that uh, I grew up with could have helped me answer. Um, I was really inspired by my philosophy teacher who was a seminary trained uh, philosopher of religion, Baptist preacher, uh, Aaron Parker. Uh, so uh, I found myself joining his church um, still wasn't wasn't satisfied. Uh, uh, radicalized at Morehouse, uh, so uh, found Islam uh, interesting, attractive. So I took Shahada under H. Rap Brown. Uh, that didn't last long. I but I was seeking. Some people might call it a holy roller. Who knows? But I I wanted to do what Professor Parker did. You know, he's an aspiring teacher. Uh, who was very, very attentive to me and, and my, my potential. And I said, I want to do that. And uh, I didn't know what doing that entailed. And a friend of mine, because uh, I was also a politically active student government president and the like, and a friend of mine had uh, heard of uh, this new PhD program in African American Studies at Temple. And so I applied and I got in and I uh, went to uh, Philadelphia to work with Malefia Asante for a little bit. Uh, no, I, I got a, a master's in that program, but I was dissatisfied from the beginning. So from no matter what I was doing, uh, no matter what my politics, uh, how my politics expressed itself, or, uh, or what I was trying to do in terms of, of, of my religious quest, uh, I was still reading, reading everything I could get my hands on. And I just thought, um, it wasn't challenging. It was, um, I wasn't getting what I needed. And so uh, I was at a conference at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, 
uh, it's a major conference on African-American studies. This was at the time when Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Malefi Asante were at the height of their conflict, uh, signifying monkey and the Afrocentric idea. Uh, both were invited to, uh, uh, to select graduate students to come to the conference. Malefi Asante invited me along with another. Uh, I gave a paper, uh, and all of the big wigs were in the audience, and that's when I found out that uh, Cornell West wanted to meet me. And so got a chance to meet Cornell, and he invited me to come to Princeton. Cornell taught it. <laughs> he was a professor of religion, and I wanted to come work with him. So, you know, I'm interested in, and you know, in the religion department at Princeton, you have religion, ethics, and politics. So I could do what I, I, I love doing, uh, just from this angle. And once I started, I got hooked. Yeah, you know, if I wasn't teaching, I'd probably be preaching. Somewhere, somehow, in some context. It's, it's my vocation. I'm a liberal arts professor to the core. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, there's a Socratic dimension for me. Um, not to say that there's not a Socratic dimension to preaching, but um, really kind of creating the context for students to, to learn. I think where the two blur, at least for me, is, is in that sense of calling, trying to uh, nurture the soul, right? trying to nurture the character. Uh, giving, feeding students uh, the material that allow, that will allow them to become or to reach for their better angels, you know, in that sense I'm doing what a preacher would do, absolutely. I can't imagine doing anything else. My mother said I was born to push a pencil and to run my mouth. So, so I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It is a calling. Um, there's nothing more fulfilling. I was just over my way over here to talk with you. Uh, a student of mine from Bowdoin, my first job was at uh, Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. And a young man uh, by the name of John Sr., teaches at Wake Forest Seminary, uh, came, walked into the elevator while I was on it. And, and I'm seeing him and I just hug him because I was his thesis advisor at Bowdoin. And he's telling me about his new book that just came out and how that was rooted in he was going to Germany, and I said, why don't you do some work on Habermas? And, uh, so to, to watch that seed that you plant grow and to watch them come into their own and then contribute to this, this body, there's nothing, nothing more rewarding. Oh, wow. Creating the conditions uh, for students to widen their horizons. So it's that curating uh, an encounter with a series of texts and arguments that could expand the various ways in which our students, or my students, see the world. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I take myself to be up to. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I published this, um, I just finished, I, I published this little small book, a uh, very short introduction. Uh, in the Oxford series on African-American religion. And uh, while I was writing it, the, the opening vignette is a story of me uh, going to uh, a small uh, Pentecostal church for the first time. Um, and because we had a gospel choir in my Catholic church. And, oh, okay. and it was a gospel convention. And I'm going there for the first time with my mother as the choir comes. And this woman gets happy next to me. She catches the spirit had never seen anything like this before. And so I'm writing this experience 
right? I'm writing this experience down as a point of entry to Du Bois's description of African-American religion. Like Du Bois from Great Barrington, Massachusetts experiences the, the, a church rocking in rural Tennessee and this woman gets the spirit right next to me and I had no language to understand it. And so um, I, could, I, I, can, I had that conversation with myself as I rewrote that experience and trying to kind of give me a language to understand something that was wholly foreign but decidedly familiar at the same time, right? I was, didn't know what was going on, but it was a kind of theater, a kind of experience that spoke to me viscerally then that speaks to me viscerally now, but I have a language for it now, not only as an object of study, but also as a way, a transformative experience for those who inhabit those spaces, so yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I never stopped being a teacher, whether it was with my son, uh, that kind of got on his nerves, um, or when I'm um, in a basement of a church, uh, having conversations with people because I've written controversial piece in the Huffington Post, or if I'm in Ferguson, uh, interviewing activists, right, or engaging in conversation with activists, right? We, you know, curating the possibility for the expansion of one's horizon. That's what we do, right? And you don't fill that with your thoughts, and I learned this from Cornell. You create the conditions under which uh, people will cultivate the habits of reading and asking and seeking that will expand their horizons. And you know, this is what the Germans call Bildung, right? This is education at its best, because it's character formation. So wherever we, wherever we are, if we take this, this, this vocation seriously, this enterprise seriously, we bring that skill set, that skill set to bear, right? We bring that skill set to bear. But this, there's nothing worse than a teacher that's turning over old crusted papers, you know, the same lecture every year. You know, when we're doing our scholarship, we are, we're growing. Uh, we're, we're staying up on the latest innovations and deepening our own um, encounters with the material that, 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 that's important to us. So the scholarship is actually central to the teaching. They're not, it's a false opposition, you know, and this is, why I'm a liberal arts professor at heart, right? Um, it's not that you just teach and don't do your work. You have to do both because the work feeds into the teaching. Uh, if you're working through an idea and you're excited about it in, in the privacy of your own study and the solitude of your own reading, um, that's going to translate in the passion that you bring to the, to the, to the subject matter that you're teaching. So um, I'm always thinking, uh, how will this translate, right? How will I translate the way in which I'm thinking about the imagination in the context of black politics to how I teach black power, right? So, you know, that's just one example, so they're hand in hand. Well, you know, the seminar room, the seminar um, format is really good for that. When it goes well is that, you know, you, you, you got the group around. I did this, I had this with my recent class on prophecy and social criticism in the United States, which is a staged debate curated debate between Michael Walzer's conception of the social critic and Edward Said's conception of the representative intellectual. 
and the stakes of that contrast are are serious because it tr it moves out of the abstract into the real world as we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian situation. And you know you have this you have the seminar and you know you want to your introductory remarks to the class before the presentations happen, and you want to give your little. They wouldn't let me finish. They kept cutting me off. So finally, by the middle of the of the semester, I just didn't do it anymore because they were so engaged and we were doing the work together. So it became this account, this experience of where we were just reading together and dialoguing together. At that point, the syllabus, which is an argument, which is the, the, the actual tool of curation, had done his work. And then I had these brilliant young folks just going at it, which was just, and you can see the, the material moving in them as they were grappling with the implications of their commitment to one side or the other, as they'd reached for nuance and complexity and gray area. It was really fun, really fun. Have the language to account for what you see and what you feel and what you experience. Then you, you're always gonna, the growth is truncated, it's, it's contained. The example I always use, when I, when I moved to, 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 to Maine, I didn't have a language for a moose because I'd never seen one. And we drove by it and I said, that is a big deer, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Until someone said, no, nah, that's a moose. And if you don't hit a moose, because it'll fall on the car. And all this stuff followed about how I then drove as opposed to you know what would happen with an encounter with a deer, right? Um, and so if we don't have the language to, to really, uh, and this is why reading deeply and expansively is so important, because every, every time we encounter a text, every time we encounter, whether it's a philosophical argument or whether it's an extraordinary novel, right, the vast archive, the archive, our treasure chest of languages, of words to describe our experiences expands. And then once we can put word to it, it's not that we're trying to capture it, but you know, then we're able to do something. We're able to move into that next phase, if that makes sense. <laughs> but you intuit when you just had a bad lecture. You just know it. Uh, I, I bombed on that one. Um, I think when, in my own experience, right, is when I know that my, when I've allowed my, my own commitments and passions to overwhelm the curatorial practice. So when, I, when I'm too invested in the arguments, I'm always invested, but I'm invested in such a way that I don't give the student the space to kind of claim her position for herself. That's when you fail, right? That's when you fail. So they can just be up in there reading Baldwin just wrong. Mm. And you just, you know, how do you want to get in there? But you got to wait. You got to point them to the passage. You can't tell them how to read it. You can't say, look, that's what the passage is doing. You got to be patient. And when I'm not patient, when I haven't been patient over the 20 years I've been teaching, wow, 20 years, <laughs> um, uh, that's when I fail. Oh my God, yeah, especially ours. Especially ours. See, the teacher, the teacher always presupposes student. The teacher is, it's like water on the mustard seed. 
right? And it's, it's, it's all about growth, right? Self-examination. Um, and we live in, in these times where people feel like they're settled in their ideas and um, they, 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 they know what the truth is and, and they're clear about wrong and right and wrong and evil and good. There's no nuance. The complexity of the world has been flattened out into melodrama, right? Where the other idioms of tragedy and comedy and irony, right, seem to have been tossed to the side as these kind of melodramatic moralists do, do what they do. And the teacher is, is, is has as, at her core that Socratic impulse. I'm going to create the conditions for you to see yourself in a different way, in a different light. I'm going to create the conditions for your horizons to expand, not narrow. Right? And so when we're, in that, when we're in that mode of asking questions, when we're in that mode of interrogation, when we're in that mode of seeking and reaching for our better selves, you are in the teaching mode. You are in the student mode. You are in the growing mode at that point. And Lord, in, a, in, in these dark times, if we don't need that, you know what I mean? We don't need that. I mean, we need that more than anything, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think so. You know, I'm a Democrat to the core. You can create hierarchy. You can reproduce all sorts of, of distinctions that reflect power dynamics. Um, you can try to produce particular kinds of people. Um, but if you're a Democrat, small d, not Democratic Party, but small d, what you want to do is cultivate uh, students who, are, who have the capacity to be critically intelligent. The kinds of citizens that, or not just citizens, the kinds of people that democracies require. Right? So yeah, there's a politics. It's not possible. We all come to the table with, with, with our commitments. Um, I'm going to be who I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, positioning, telling my students, making explicit my commitments and saying, now, what are you going to do with them? Right? So I don't want to position myself as kind of the value-neutral, objective arbiter of ideas, right? No, we're going we're gonna to curate this thing. I'm going to make my positions known as we're talking about the material. And then you can stand in critical relation to what I'm doing, right? And this is all about us being active listeners and active readers so that the material, whether it's in, the, in between the pages or whether it's the professor, it doesn't wash over you because it comes with the veneer of objectivity, right? Of, of the authority of the truth, right? Now, what we want, what I'm trying to do is cultivate, uh, at least in part, this active relation uh, to, to, to the learning process. So I'm going to implicate myself in that. But if I don't go too far, then we're back to where I said earlier, right? I can't do that too quickly. I can't do that too aggressively. Right? But I'm going to do, I'm going to make myself, I'm going to implicate me in it. I don't know. You know, I mean, there is this, there's always been this sense, and I don't know where it came from, that I was put on the planet to do something. 
there's this seeking, you know. My dad tells the story that he was born with the, the call over his face. And, and in, our, in our folklore and others, the call is supposed to be a sign that something's special. You can see ghosts, right? There's something uncanny about that baby. And so my father was on his way to being a priest and, and made a left turn um, at some point. And so then I come along and I look just like him. Incredibly complex relationship with that man. Um, but I've always felt something special, right? Calling, which I think motivated the search, the religious questing. Um, and now, you know, I, I tend to read that in this way. I'm always trying to live into that crown, as Baldwin would say, that's just above my head, uh, coming out of that tradition, right? So I'm, and you can read that as a kind of Emersonian perfectionist move, right? That I'm always trying to reach for a higher self, right? Trying to reach for that better self. And so that questing that was translated or evidenced in a particular way when I was younger is now manifesting itself in a very different way now, but there's a, con there's a continuity, I think, between it. So, you know, just trying to, trying to be a better, the best human being that I can be, understanding that out of the tra tradition I come, life ain't been no crystal state. So it's always a struggle. It's always tied to brokenness, my own fragility. And hearing what Cornell says to me, said to me a long time ago, we have a choice. We're all wounded, and the choice is whether we're going to be wounded herders or wounded healers. And, you know, so I'm just trying to live, live that, live into that crown, and with the understanding, I'm wounded and broken. If that makes sense. <laughs> you know, oftentimes I'm staying in the house with my mom and my daddy. I just took, I just went back just recently to take it to the county fair. Just flew back home, and we, you know, just walked around holding hands, eating. Uh, we, she can't eat candy apples no more, but uh, messing with funnel cake and all this other stuff, you know, it was great. Um, so, you know, my nickname is Bebe, so they call me Dr. Bebe. Uh, and uh, so they're, pr they're proud, you know, they're proud. Uh, they understand that uh, I'm out here, um, I never, I'm never on television or where I'm not saying where I'm from. Uh, they know I can I can be a bit radical, but they're it's, they're proud, and uh, but I'm I'm kind of a reckless. I just kind of come home because they're getting older. I just hanging out with my mama, <laughs> to the core. Lord have mercy, she, but you know you can actually see though uh, that neo Pentecostal impact right, on her and her, the very ways in which she expresses her her Catholicism, because my sister is is. Uh, Pentecostal to the core. She's non-denominational. I should, I should say she's not denominational, but it's that kind of the way in which she expresses it. She, she's an itinerant. She preaches all over the place. Uh, so, but you can hear it. And you know, they always, they all, you know, baby, he studies religion, but you know, we gonna, we, we know we gonna get him at some point. He's gonna come to Christ in a minute. We know, we know, it's, we know it's on him, right? So, I'm, but they know how to, you know, they know how to navigate it. I don't think I'll ever um, stop being in the classroom.
Right? It's hard. You get busy. Right? You know, there's the administrative work, the demands of the lecture circuit. I have a new book coming out, Democracy in Black. It's my first trade book. I'm trying to enter into this discussion around contemporary race relations in a way um, that reflects our generation. It's, my, you know, it's coming out with Crown, the same place that people publish The Audacity of Hope. And da, da, da. But you know, getting back in that classroom, watching my students do what they do. Um, so I'm going to do this till, till they tell me I have to stop. Yeah, I can fly my mom anywhere she wants to go. Right? Yeah. So, you know, my son, we did it, you know. We had our, we had our, me and my wife, who's also an academic, uh, we, our son, we raised him. He's now at Brown. He's launched. Uh, we can bring our parents up. Her parents are, you know, immigrants from Jamaica, left everything to give her a life. And we can bring them up for the Thanksgiving holidays. I can go home and, so I get, I get paid nicely to read, write, and run my mouth. The only thing I can see that's comparable is like playing a sport for a living, or being, you know, you know what I mean, or preaching the gospel, right, or being on the bench, a judge or something. I'd get to do what I love to do and take care of my family, so absolutely. We hope you've enjoyed listening to scholars talk about their teaching life. And we're out. How was that, Paul?